Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You are listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. This is Carol Adams, author of The Sexual Politics of Peace. You leave a piece of yourself behind with every goodbye. A place to love dogs.com. Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, we're going to be speaking to Associate Professor Kirsten Andrews about the philosophy of animal minds. This is part two of a two part interview. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Beth. Do you think that it's possible for chimpanzees and rats to have empathy? I think that there's some good reason to think that chimpanzees and rats have something along the lines of what we call empathy. So the studies that people have been doing on rats lately that suggest something like empathy will take this in the following kind of scenario. A rat is placed in a, in a tube that's aversive and vocalizes to be released. Another rat is released into a chamber so that they can, where they can open the tube and release the rat. But say there's also chocolate in the cage, and rats like chocolate, like everybody. And so the question is, will the rat free the conspecific or eat the chocolate? And the observation is that the rats tend to open the, open the enclosure and then release their conspecific rat and then eat the chocolate with the, the rat that they freed. And this is interpreted as having empathy for the trapped rat. Now, empathy is, there are many different kinds of empathy. And one very simple kind of empathy is sometimes described as emotional contagion. So it might be that when the rat hears the uh, trapped rat vocalizing, it's something that makes that rat feel uncomfortable as well, and they want to stop that discomfort that they're feeling, so they open the trap and release the other rat and to share the food. But it, it could be that the rat has some sort of a feeling for a relationship with the rat who's trapped and some desire to free that rat. We don't really know the answer to that question yet. I think it would be quite interesting to run these sorts of experiments while manipulating the relationships that the two rats had. If the rats seem to be uh, affiliated with one another, does that increase the likelihood that uh, a rat will free the trapped conspecific as opposed to two stranger rats? That would be very interesting. As far as chimpanzees go, Franz de Waal has done a lot of really interesting research over the last few decades, suggesting that chimpanzees do have empathy, not just for one another, but that they have empathy for individuals of different species. And he often relays an anecdote of a chimpanzee who was in a, in a zoo, and I believe it was a starling fell into the enclosure and was injured and so couldn't fly, and the chimpanzee picked up the starling and climbed to the highest part of the cage and held the bird up high as if trying to 
help the bird fly. And why this is taken to be a case of empathy is that the uh, chimpanzee was able to recognize that the needs and desires of the starling was different from the chimpanzee's own needs and desires, and then was, in addition, had this kind of moral motivation to help the starling achieve its its desires to fly out of the cage. So there are a lot of anecdotes about chimpanzees and observations and scientific studies of things like consolation that Franz Duwall has done. So the chimpanzee will loses a fight, their friend will come over and put their arm around them and give them comfort, also suggesting some understanding of the emotional state that the chimpanzee is in. There's been a lot of research done on chimpanzee facial expressions and the kind of uh, awareness that chimpanzees have of how facial expressions relate to emotions and behaviors and so on. So, yeah, the chimpanzees, is, there's a, because we've studied them for so long, that we have many of them in captivity, and there are very many wild chimpanzee research sites. We really have a, a lot more evidence when it comes to chimpanzee cognitive capacities, including empathy, than we do on other any other species, I think probably more so on on chimpanzees than any other species. But I think that probably has more to do just with the fact that we've studied them longer and we have more researchers working on them than anything about them being special when it comes to having empathy or having any other sort of communicative ability. Yeah, you, you don't often think about empathy, especially like with cats and dogs, but with my brother, who's not really much of an animal lover, he took in a cat and started feeding it and he noticed that you know he was giving it one meal a day but it'd sit outside and meow very loudly and he'd go out and you think oh I can't be hungry again and he'd give it some more food and then 10 minutes later he'd go out and the food would be gone you think this is incredible I really didn't know cats ate so much but one day he thought, I'm, I'm going to get to the bottom of this situation. So he went out and put the food out and then he ran around the bedroom and he looked out of the window quietly and he really couldn't believe what he saw. As, as soon as the, the cat that he'd adopted went over and started to pretend to eat the food, then moved away from the plate and a mangy old stray tomcat came over and then ate the rest of the food. So she was more or less saying, feed me, feed me, and pretending to eat it, and as soon as she thought he's not watching anymore, the other cat came over and ate it, and he he said to me, I'm not much of an animal person, but I just had so much respect for the cat and what she did that (laughs) that I've kept her. And I thought that was quite incredible. I hadn't heard a, a story like that before. No, that's a good, that's a great story. And these sorts of stories, I think, are really instructive when it comes to designing experiments. That we right now we know very little about cat cognition because cats are kind of hard to work with, which might not surprise anyone who has a cat. <laughs> but there's there's a cat research lab that's not far from me in London, Ontario where they're starting to ask questions like this. And so when we hear these stories about about empathy in cats, it can give scientists ideas about how to design experiments testing for empathy in cats. And I wouldn't be surprised to find out that there is empathy in cats 
in some cats. I suspect there's a lot of individual differences when it comes to, to different cats. But I had a cat that seemed quite empathetic when I was a teenager. She knew when I was sad, and she would jump on my lap, and I would pet her and feel better. And how did she know? Did she really know? Did she just want to be petted, and she knew when I was sad I would pet her more often? Who knows? <laughs> need to do the studies. But there is some ability, there was some ability to cue into my mood that this cat had. We need to study more cats. Yeah, definitely. I, I suppose it's the same when you say, you know, some cats and, and even some dogs. It's it's the same with some people. I mean, some humans don't have very much empathy, do they? That's for sure. That is for sure. It's very important that we keep individual differences in mind when we're studying non-human animals. And this is particularly important to keep in mind when we're looking at studies with a very small sample size. So I said that we studied a lot of chimpanzees a lot of chimpanzees in captivity. This is relative to orangutans, gorillas, bonobos, and dolphins. There actually aren't a lot of chimpanzees if you compare them to the number of humans we have as research subjects available to us. So if you do an experiment with chimpanzees and you have 12 chimpanzees and none of them can pass the test, this doesn't mean that chimpanzees can't do something. It just means these 12 chimpanzees can't do something. Maybe it's cultural. Maybe there are other chimpanzee communities and where this behavior exists. Maybe the chimpanzees don't like where they're being housed, and so they're crabby and don't want to participate. Maybe they don't like the researcher. There are all kinds of other variables that that could be in play here. Mm, Definitely. Individual differences. Yeah. Do you think that chimpanzees reason about belief? I think that there's excellent evidence now that chimpanzees are able to track others' beliefs and that they are able to know when somebody has a false belief. So there was a a recent experiment done by Christopher Croupenier and colleagues, and this is out of Leipzig in Kyoto, and they found that chimpanzees passed the false belief test. Now, this false belief test was invented to, to be used with children, uh, 40 years ago, and for 40 years, people thought chimpanzees don't understand false belief because they couldn't pass these tests. The test goes like this. This is one, one example of the false belief test. Sally sees a bar of chocolate, and she wants to save this bar of chocolate for later, so she puts it in a basket, and then she leaves the room. When Sally's gone, Anne comes into the room, and she sees the chocolate in the basket, She takes it out of the basket, and then she puts it in a box and leaves. Sally comes back into the room, and she says, I'm going to get my chocolate now. If you ask a three-year-old child where Sally's going to go to look for her chocolate, they're going to tell you the box. And if you ask them why, they're going to say, because that's where the chocolate is. And it makes sense. It would be great if she knew the chocolate was there for her to go to the box to get the chocolate. But what the three-year-old children have difficulty with is recognizing that Sally didn't, doesn't know that the chocolate's in the box because Sally left the chocolate in the basket. Kids get to be four and a half, five. They answer that Sally is looking for the chocolate in the, in the basket. And if you ask them why they, that she looks there, they'll answer because that's where she left it. So this experiment has been interpreted as 
five-year-olds getting an understanding of belief, that they reason about the belief of Sally in this little scenario. It might just be that these children understand a little bit about knowledge and evidence, that they're able to form heuristics about what people do. For example, people look for objects where they left them. But however they're solving this problem, what it shows is that they can track false beliefs. And Christopher Krupenye and his colleagues found that chimpanzees and, and other great apes can also track false beliefs. But chimpanzees don't care about moved chocolates. They don't care about treats being put in boxes or baskets. So all of the attempts to use something that looked like this false belief task used with kids didn't elicit the attention of the apes. What worked was building a scenario that the apes watched where there was a battle between a King Kong figure and a human figure and two haystacks. So the, the ape scenario was that a fight happened between King Kong, who's a human dressed up in a King Kong suit, and a human. They started fighting and wrestling each other, and then the King Kong hid in one of two different haystacks. When the human went away to get a bat to beat up King Kong, the King Kong moved from one haystack to another and then left the scene. And the, what the researchers did is showed the apes this video and set them up with an eye tracker, and they were able to, to say that the apes were predicting the human would go and beat up the haystack where King Kong last was because that's where he thought he was, right? we might say, because that's where the human thought he was, where he last was. So the ape subjects were able to track this belief that the human had, even though the apes themselves knew that King Kong was no longer in the haystack. They knew that this human had a false belief, basically. Now, again, whether they know that humans have beliefs that are true or false is another question, a question about how they solve the task. But certainly it's evidence that the apes can uh, track false beliefs. And it's a, such a cool study because it really takes into consideration what motivates chimpanzees, what, how to get them to solve a cognitive task. We have to do something that's interesting for them, like fighting. Though I have to say that orangutans were less interested, and orangutans don't fight nearly as much as chimpanzees, which is why I think that the orangutans didn't do so well on the test. <laughs> You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Associate Professor Kirsten Andrews about the philosophy of animal minds. How does animal cognition differ from human cognition? That is a very big question. And throughout, I think, thousands of years we've been trying to figure out what makes humans special, are humans rational, do humans, are humans the only tool users or tool makers, are humans the only one who can, who have a sense of self or can recognize themselves in a mirror, are humans the only ones who communicate. You know, we, we ask these questions, people provide a hypothesis, yes, we're the rational animal, Aristotle. And then we find out that great apes dolphins, a bunch of other species can engage in tasks 
that look like logical reasoning tasks, look like modus ponens or reasoning from exclusion. So I think it's really hard to point to any one thing and say this is the way animal cognition differs from human cognition. We know that humans can do things like have this interview, which is not something any non-human animal can do. We know that humans can build cities and technologies and so on that are way beyond the capacity of any non-human animal. Suppose humans can destroy the planet too, the way the way we have been, yeah. and non-human animals right. aren't doing that. So perhaps there's another reason behind why other animals aren't doing that. Maybe maybe it's really by humans doing that we're not showing our intelligence. Yeah, it might be that we destroy ourselves and other animals are still around to, to live on this planet when we are, are not, or most of us are not. That's possible, yeah, because other animals just don't have the resources to engage in the kind of massive global destruction that we're doing right now. Yeah, but we know that animals have culture, right, and culture is what allows us to gain the technologies that we're using for good or ill. So it might be a time issue. It might be that with enough time, if we allow these species to thrive in the wild, that they might develop into ways that do look more similar to our technologically advanced civilizations. And I don't mean in 10 years or 100 years, but it would be in millions and millions of years we might see some, some change in the evolution of other animals that really limits or changes the way we think about similarities and differences between us. So I I find it very difficult to point to anything and say this is a difference between animal cognition and human cognition. I'm just not sure. We have more choices than other animals. I can say that. So perhaps having to deal with all the choices that we have given ourselves has sped up um, our evolutionary process that we've had so many more changes in our environment that we've had to to fit to. I don't know. So what what sort of evidence is there that other animals have culture? Oh, so there's been, since the early 2000s, there's been research programs looking at wild behaviors in a number of different species that are specific to different communities and that are socially learned but aren't based on ecological factors or genetic factors. So this might be something like some chimpanzees hunt monkeys and other chimpanzees don't hunt monkeys. Some chimpanzees crack nuts, other chimpanzee communities don't. Some chimpanzee communities who crack nuts use stone hammers, others use wooden hammers. So these differences spread in cultures because they're socially learned by young, naive chimpanzees. They'll look very closely at their parents, their mother, basically, uh, engaging in nutcracking techniques, or they'll observe hunters going on hunts and follow them and practice. And it takes a while to gain these skills, but they gain them, and, and they continue to spread through these communities. So this is the sort of evidence that we see in the great apes. Uh, all the great ape species have seen these kind of cultural differences We've seen things like this in uh, capuchin monkeys as well, as well as bottlenose dolphins. The the dolphins in Shark Bay, Australia, who forage with 
sponges on their rostrums, their noses. This is a behavior that's been picked up by some group of female dolphins and spreads to these female dolphins. It's not widely seen elsewhere, but the sponges are put on the rostrums to protect them when they're foraging on the bottom of the ocean so they don't get all, all torn up. There was a really interesting experiment by Erica Vanderwall and colleagues with vervet monkeys who were, uh, she was looking at social learning from infants to mothers. And what she did was provision these wild vervet monkeys with corn that had been dyed pink or blue. And for two of the four groups, the pink corn was originally treated so it tasted bad. And for the other two groups, the blue corn was treated so it originally tasted bad. So when the vervets for vervet communities were exposed to the corn, they liked one color and not the other color. But then she stopped treating it so one tasted bad and the other tasted good. It all tasted fine. But the groups who were exposed to the blue-tasting, blue-good-tasting corn only ate blue corn, and the groups who were exposed to the pink good-tasting corn only ate pink corn. And then when the mums had babies, the babies in the blue-eating groups only ate blue corn, and the babies in the pink-eating groups only ate pink corn. This is really interesting because this corn for the babies is perfectly good whether it's pink or blue, but they wouldn't engage in the behavior that wasn't being uh, demonstrated to them. But then what was really interesting is that the babies grew up and immigrated to different groups. The blue corn-eating monkeys moved to pink-eating groups, and the pink-eating monkeys moved to blue-eating groups. This is just a very lucky coincidence for the research. And what they found is that these immigrants switched their food preference and started eating the food color that was um, preferred by their new group. And this is very weird from an evolutionary perspective because there was this food resource, all of this corn that nobody was touching, that the monkeys spent their entire life eating that they now no longer ate because they preferred conforming to the majority behavior. Now, this looks a lot like the kind of uh, adopting a new culture that you see humans engage in when they move into a new group and want to fit into a new group. You stop doing the old behavior and you start doing the new thing. You stop wearing, you know, whatever you wore back home and you wear whatever's cool in your new community. That's what it looks like these vermin monkeys are doing when they switch their eating this perfectly good food and then had to compete for the food that everybody else wanted. That looks like culture. Mm, that's really fascinating. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't discussed already? Well, I, I can mention that one thing that I think is really important about all of this research on animal minds is what the ethical sorts of implications of, uh, of the research is. If we find out that other animals are conscious, as we're finding out, if we find out what their preferences are, we find out that they flourish in some environments and not in others, we figure out what their memory is like. You know, the more we learn about other species, the more we understand what they need in order to live well. And I think the more we have to consider our moral obligations to non-human species, as we learn more about their minds. 
Now, it's not just that we need to respect these other individuals and kind of not interfere with them. We have problems to solve because of the interference that we've already done. These are really tricky questions, and we have to balance human interests and non-human interests when trying to deal with them. And I really encourage anyone who's interested in the philosophy of animal minds to also think about what these ethical implications might be. I'm... I'm not. I'm working on this a little bit with the Non-Human Rights Project in the in the case of the chimpanzees and the kind of captivity, captive situations that's ethically acceptable for uh, for chimpanzees. But I'm also interested in looking at whether non-human animals have anything approaching moral sensibilities of their own, whether they engage in anything that looks like moral practice uh, of their own. So we already talked a little bit about empathy. And some people think that empathy is part of morality, as part of a moral practice. I'm looking at other sorts of capacities that other animals might have that would be possibly part of a moral practice. Moral foundations research in humans suggests that among across cultures, things like in-group, out-group thinking, deference to authority, um, concerns about purity, are, are think also implicated in our moral systems. And as we're learning more about other species, we're seeing some evidence that there's the same sort of moral foundational thinking that exists in, like, great apes and whales and dolphins. So this is another really interesting avenue of research that, uh, that I'm looking into, and I hope that next time we can talk about that. Yes, that'd be that'd be very good. Now you mentioned right at the beginning of the interview about your future study plans, but would you like to go into a bit more detail about them? Well, so the, I'm writing a book on the evolution of moral psychology and looking at research that's been done on humans, uh, human moral psychology across cultures, as well as looking at moral theories across cultures in order to then turn to the science of animal mind to see to what extent we see similarities and differences in uh, different species. My working hypothesis right now is that morality is, is a kind of social tool, and like other tools, it's something that is learned, culturally learned, and shared in communities, and that we might see evidence of something like social norms in some non-human animal species as well. So I'm working on a notion that I call animal social norms, which is an account of social norms that doesn't require the kind of metacognitive capacity that is often associated with other accounts of uh, social norms, um, such as Christina Bicchieri's account of social norms. And I'm showing evidence of social norms, these kind of animal social norms in, in grade apes and perhaps in whales and dolphins. I'm still working on that part. And I'm also looking at the cognitive capacities that would be required for having these kind of social norms, which include things like understanding of agency, being able to discriminate agents from non-agents, being able to discriminate in-group members from out-group members, being motivated to learn the in-group way of doing things, like the velvet monkeys, being motivated to eat the corn that their group is eating. And then the final uh, cognitive capacity, 
is consciousness of appropriateness. So this is one thing we don't have much evidence for yet in other animals, that there are some sort of sanctions for violating the normative way of doing things in an animal community. And I I really am interested in asking this question and talking to researchers in the field about the places we might investigate to see whether there are sanctions or other evidence that animals understand when someone's violating a social norm and how they react to those sorts of violations. Yeah, it's very worthwhile research. So thank you very much for coming onto the program today. It's been my pleasure, Beth. Thank you very much for having me. And I've been speaking to Associate Professor Kirsten Andrews about philosophy of animal minds. This is part two of a two-part interview. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought.